0: Welcome to the Academy Podcast, a podcast dedicated to sharing rich content for the purpose of spiritual growth. I'm your host, Shalom Agderap, who participated in the two-year Academy for Spiritual Formation and graduated from Academy 29. I've served on leadership teams, but really, I'm a fan and a friend of the Academy. The Academy creates transformative space for people to connect with God, self, and others and creation for the sake of the world. To learn more about the academy visit academy.upperroom.org I live in the pacific northwest and as I survey my natural surroundings I am in constant awe of the bright reds, yellows and oranges that are falling to the ground all around me. I love this season because as much as we think we're capturing life in our cute fall photos we're really getting a front row seat to death. Summer ends and leaves fall. I don't avoid this truth. Part of practicing spirituality means we cultivate gratitude in every season, especially in the barren times. I'm filled with gratitude every time I watch my now 15-month-old figure out something new. Human development for me is how I experience the beauty of God. I've adapted Irenaeus's quote and I repeat it often. The glory of God is human being come fully alive. When was the last time you felt fully alive? Can I let myself believe that when I am deeply rooted and stretching out in joy, that God is more fully known? What causes us to deny joy in ourselves or in others? What experiences with shame cause us to cover up or go quiet? This month's podcast features Dr. Elaine Heath, academy faculty, upper room books, author, and so much more. Elaine's scholarly work is interdisciplinary, integrating pastoral, biblical, and spiritual theology in ways that bridge the gap between academy, church, and world. And it's because of this approach that I'm excited for her words to us today that were a portion of her time with Academy 34. Her current research interests focus on community as a means of healing trauma, emergent forms of Christianity and alternative forms of theological education for the church in rapidly changing contexts. In addition to having served as Dean of a divinity school and professor of evangelism, Elaine is co-founder of the Missional Wisdom Foundation, and more recently, she co-founded Neighborhood Seminary, a contextualized model of missional theological education for lay people. Soon, Elaine and Juan Huertas, who is the Minister of Proclamation and the Practice of Justice at First Plymouth Congregational Church in Lincoln, Nebraska, will be co-leading an online Academy Day apart retreat on November 12th. The theme of this day apart is healing the wounds of Christendom, reclaiming the good news of the gospel. Elaine and Juan will help us explore these topics while we engage the Academy rhythms of community, silence, worship, and embodied spiritual practice. Space is limited, so please register at academy.upperroom.org. The registration deadline is November 5, 2021. More information is available on our website. As you listen today, think of your life of faith and examine it for any woundedness that it carries. Where is it tender? What practices feel triggering because of neglect and abuse by theologies that were too male, too narrow, too strict? Listen on, dear one, and as you listen, Breathe deeply and remember that love is never coercive. It is not intended to diminish you. Love does not delight in your suffering.
1: So I want to talk with you about our human story. Our divine story. Our human story and God's story are bound together, cannot be separated. That's what I want to talk about. Um, It's good for us to always remember that the the scripture is multivalent. Have you seen this phrase before? It means it has many meanings at the same time. Now, this is where um, it can be. This can be very uh, scary to people whose theological development is about about like a five-year-old in Fowler's stages of faith very concrete, words can only mean one thing, the text can only mean one thing, and you better figure out what the right thing is or you're guilty of heresy. Okay, we're not going there. <laughs> not going there. No, um, if you go back to the ancient way of um, interpreting Scripture, the first few hundred years of the church, that's like way back, uh, they all believed this, that every text has at least three or four meanings, maybe more. If you take that scripture in Hebrews, it says the word of God is living and active, sharper than a two-edged sword, able to discern between us, soul and spirit. What's it talking about? It's telling us, that scripture is telling us that when we come to the scriptures with our hearts open to let the scripture read us, Lectio Divina, right? let it read us, that the word can speak to us in a new way every single time we read it. And that does not negate how it spoke to us before, necessarily. It might. It might show us, oh, we were, I was mistaken. I was mistaken about part of what I thought before. But do you understand what I'm saying? So it's multivalent. So we're going to look at this scripture in a multivalent way. Now, we know from the text, the text itself tells us that Adam and Eve were in the garden. God had created these people We have two accounts of creation, each with a different theological agenda. Complementary. They work well together. And we know that the the Bible says that they were naked and unashamed. So two people, two theologians in the history of the church, um, have picked up on this. St. Irenaeus. Is that a familiar name to you? St. Irenaeus, one of the great theologians of the early church. Um, in the Eastern tradition, the Orthodox side of the church, uh, wrote a treatise about Adam and Eve, and he suggested that they were not fully mature humans. The Orthodox side of the church, the Eastern church, does not believe in the doctrine of original sin. See, I said doctrine. They don't believe in the doctrine of original sin in the way that the Western church does. We have inherited the Western tradition in our Protestant world, the Western tradition, coming to us through Augustine, says that we're born, we're born sinful, we're born already sinful, that, that we're, we inherit that, and uh, the original sin comes from Adam and Eve. And from that Western tradition, we inherit this idea that sin is basically about pride and rebellion. Is that pretty much what you've heard before? Yeah, pride. It's really about pride. And they, they wanted to lift themselves up against God and they wanted to defy what they knew. What they, were, they were not supposed to do this, so they wanted to defy God and do it anyway, and there's this pride. But Irenaeus suggests an entirely different trajectory here. And um, Irenaeus has never been denounced as a heretic Always considered a very important theologian in the church, and um, you know, in the early church, the first few hundred years of the church, there were multiple there were multiple ways of looking at this, and they were all considered okay. There were there was greater diversity of Christian thought than when we than we maybe have encountered in the late 20th century, in the 20th century, especially in the Protestant world. You go to seminary and you get this stuff and Uh, So, Irenaeus had a different view. For Irenaeus and others of his colleagues, Uh, the idea was that Adam and Eve were immature. And so when they ate the fruit, when they ate it, it wasn't out of prideful rebellion, it was out of immaturity, naivete. Not able to really understand what death is going to mean. And for Irenaeus, um the, 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 the consequence has more to do with wounding than anything else, wounding that leads to sin being released. Does that make sense? So uh, I'm with him on this. I'm with him on this. And I'll get to why I'm with him on this in a moment, but that's enough of Irenaeus for now. We'll just sort of leave that snapshot standing over here, okay? Keep that up there, stuck on a post-it note on the wall. This is Irenaeus. These are immature uh, people. They're not fully mature, so they couldn't possibly understand all that's going to happen. And in the Eastern tradition, um, the, the idea is that it's much more therapeutic. The salvation, that word salvation, salve, that means healing. <laughs> so there's a more healing, a more therapeutic notion of salvation and of atonement. At one month, right? Well, you come forward to the 14th century. You encounter Julian of Norwich. Uh, She's an English mystic. Have you read showings in the course of your work in this program? How many people have read showings, Revelation of Divine Love? Okay. This is one of the most important theology books I've ever read in my whole life, and I've read thousands of books. So I I highly recommend everybody read showings. (laughs) Julian was, um, she, was probably, she was probably taken to a convent when she was a little girl. This was common in the time. So she went and she grew up probably in a convent. Uh, we don't have a biography of her. We just know a little bit about her. People reference her in some different documents. Uh, I'm talking about outside of her book that she wrote. It, this, is, this is her only book, Showings, Revelations of Divine Love. Uh, The first book written by an English woman, so far as we know. The quality of writing is equal to Geoffrey Chaucer. It's an outstanding literary classic, strictly as a literary work, completely removed from its uh, value as a a mystical text. And, um, And her work and herself were never denounced by the church as being heretical. She has always been considered an outstanding theologian in the church. Okay, so all of that, now, now let me tell you what this book is about. When she was a little girl, she was four or five years old, I think. She, um, common to the time, she prayed that God would allow her to share in Christ's sufferings. Now, most kids today wouldn't do that. If they did, we'd, we would hustle them off to a therapist, right? Right. <laughs> There's something wrong with my child. But, but in her culture and being, you know, growing up with uh, the Christian story, uh, because she loved Jesus so much, and the natural thing when we love someone is if they're suffering, we want to take the suffering from them. We want to share it with them. This is the most natural thing in the world. So she prays for God to let her share in the sufferings of Christ, and nothing happens. She's very disappointed. Time goes on. She's 30 and a half years old, she says in her book. Falls deathly ill. She's very, very sick. She's on her deathbed. And they call the priest to do last rites. The priest comes, uh, anoints her, holds the crucifix over her, which is the custom, and begins to do the prayers. And she has a series of 16 mystical visions of the suffering of Christ. Uh, This is uh, the passion of Christ. This is way before Mel Gibson's passion of the Christ (laughs) But she sees, she sees Christ on the cross. She, sees, uh, she describes it in great detail. She sees the, the thorns penetrating his flesh. She sees him drying up from dehydration. She sees the blood running down. It sounds gruesome. But the weird thing, when you read her book and she's describing what she's seeing and she's describing what those things mean because God takes each aspect of Christ's suffering and then unpacks it. This is what it means that God loves us. You don't come out of it sort of Horrified and grossed out by all of this blood, what you come out of so full of hope and thanksgiving, you can't even believe it. It's transformative. That's why I'm telling you, you need to read this book. <laughs> so she has these 16 visions of the meaning, and she keep, she has all of these. You've you've heard some famous quotes that love is God's meaning, and all shall be well, all shall be well, all manner of things shall be well. Okay, she has these visions. At the end of the the, the last vision, she miraculously it, and instantaneously recovers from her illness and is okay. So uh, she enters into uh, a cell attached to the Church of St. Julian in Norwich, England, which, and she becomes an anchorite, sort of a professional intercessor for the rest of her life. And she lived to be very old. So she lives there. So right after she goes into this cell, she writes an account of of this uh, experience that she's had. It's called the short text. But there were certain things that she saw and heard in these visions that she could not explain. God wouldn't let her understand them yet. And God told her, I want you to meditate on every single detail of what I showed you and, and write the meaning. So she does a short version. She meditates and prays for years. She has a cat in there. She takes in sewing. She's, and she, she becomes famous far and wide all across Europe as being a wise spiritual counselor. People start coming to see her. They go up to her curtained window and tell her their troubles. And she tells them what God is really like. And they go away with hope. All of you who do spiritual formation need to know what she did. What she did. She's a real apostle of hope. She was doing spiritual direction in her own way. Uh, Among other things, she saw that Jesus loves us as a good mother. She has this feminine imagery for God that was remarkable. So Julian has these visions, and, and there's this one vision that is not in the short text, it is in the long text, and it becomes the central key that unlocks the meaning of all the other visions. It's the servant parable, the servant parable. So here's what happened. God keeps showing her through the, the withered flesh and all that, you know, love is God's meaning. Love, not judgment, not hate, not anger. This is at a time when Lollards are being marched past the church of St. Julian on their way to be executed for heresy. Lollards, sort of early Pentecostal singing in the spirit people. She's living in a time where three sweeps of bubonic plague go through her area and just wipe out all these people. She's living in a time when people are pretty sure God is very angry. And she's telling them no love is God's meaning. So God's telling her this in these visions. And so she says to God, I don't understand. I don't want to defy um, Holy Mother Church. Will you tell me about hell? We're supposed to fear hell and tell me about sin. I haven't seen or heard anything about sin and hell, and I need to know about that. This is Elaine Heath paraphrase. (laughs) And so God says to her, Don't worry about your neighbor's sin. You just take care of yourself. And among other things, God says, when you sin, as soon as you realize you've sinned, you need to get up and run to your good mother, Jesus, who will kiss it better. Remarkable. So, in in answer to her question, what about hell? What about hell? Because she just can't see hell. She can see redemption. She can see salvation. She can see the eschaton in many ways. But hell doesn't come into the picture, and she's really worried about that. So, God shows her this vision a vision of this Lord who's sitting in a vast place. Of course, she's living in a time where there are lords, right? It's a feudal society. She sees this Lord and she describes him with courtly language. She says he's most courteous. He's warm and loving. He's approachable. He's most courteous. He's sitting there. And he has a servant who loves him dearly, who would do anything for him. It's the servant's joy to be the servant. And so the servant, uh, the Lord says to the servant, I want you to go and get this thing. And so the servant runs off in haste and joy. And in in, in his exuberance, his childlike exuberance falls into a dell, which means a deep gully. Falls in and is wounded with seven wounds. Well, of course, in medieval numerology, seven is the number of completeness, right? So the servant is harmed in all the possible ways a person can be harmed by, by the fall, but is still alive. Then the worst wound of all, and she lists out what all the wounds are. I won't go into those right now. The worst wound is the servant is down in the bottom of this ravine, can't get out, thinks that the Lord is far away and doesn't know what's going on and feels very disappointed and hurt because he can't fulfill what the Lord has asked him to do. She says, but what the servant doesn't know is the Lord does see him and loves him all the more because in his exuberance he fell. And it's getting him out of there. And then you've got these chapters where she talks about how the Lord reaches down into the deep depths with this great root of salvation and pulls up the servant. Well, she uses all of it. She goes on for several chapters interpreting what this means. But what she's really getting at in this parable is this. Um, do you remember in uh, the, Paul's theology, the Paul the Apostle, Pauline theology? Do you remember ever hearing of first and second Adam? And who was first Adam? Humanity, right? Ha Adam, the people. And God made them, male and female, in God's image and said they were good. So we have humanity. Not just men, but humanity. A corporate humanity. The human race. And who is second Adam? Christ. Very good. So she sees that servant and she's, she describes what actually we could call visual ambiguity. Did you ever see those images where you look at the picture and it's like a rabbit and suddenly your brain says, no, it's a duck? Or you look at it and it looks like an old woman and all of a sudden your brain says, no, it's a young woman and that's the hat. (laughs) You know what I'm talking about? Yeah, Yeah, our brains are not capable of seeing both those images at the same time. It has to keep switching back and forth. It's the way our brains are wired. It's a visual ambiguity. So Julian actually has this experience of seeing first and second Adam at the same time and they are both the servant together. So far, so good? So this servant that she sees who falls into the dell in his zealous immaturity and desire and joy is both humanity, uh, Irenaeus' immature people, is both humanity and Christ. And what she says is, Sorry about the loud voice. (laughs) She says that Christ loves us so much. The Trinity loves us so much that Christ cannot bear to be apart from us. Cannot bear it. So wherever we go, Christ must go because Christ is bound to us with love. What is it that it says in Romans 8? Nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ, right? Now, everything she sees is deeply scriptural. And so, in her theology, this experience of the fall, the falling into the dell, when we go down, Christ goes with us because Christ cannot bear to be away from us. And when Christ comes up with resurrection, Christ pulls us up with him. Because Christ can't bear to be away from us. This is her theology. Um, Julian has been called a proto-universalist. She never says there's no hell. It's just that God didn't show hell to her. God gave her that parable when she was questioning about hell. God wanted her to know that God's love is bigger and stronger and smarter than everything else. And that Christ cannot bear to be apart from us. Isn't that something? So the mission of God in the world is shalom, the healing of all that is broken and damaged and lost in this world because of sin, because of error, because of dumb mistakes being sinned against. God's mission is to reverse all of that, to heal it. And Julian tells us with her parable that God is so capable bring bringing about shalom that we're better off after we are healed than we were before any of this happened. Isn't that something? Profound and beautiful. So I believe that this mission of God is about the healing of our original wounds. Lisa, God sees Lisa's whole story. God sees your whole story and mine. Clear back to before I was born. Before you were born. God knows it all. So the healing of original wounds, God is able to bring this about. The forgiveness of sin that's happened in my life. The forgiveness, the transformation of the Han into compassion and wisdom. This is all a process, right? It doesn't happen instantaneously. It's a process for us because we have to live into it. But in God's eyes, Julian tells us, we're already God's joy, His crown, His very great delight. Already, before we live into the process. Because God knows where it's going. God is taking us into shalom. The mission of God is liberation from bondage of every kind. God does not want us in slavery, God does not want us diminished. Uh, Irenaeus said, the glory of God is a human fully alive. That was Irenaeus. And ultimately, as we're living into this shalom that is salvation in Christ, we come to the place um, where we are once again naked and unashamed. This morning, Hesu talked about the power of silence, the contemplative path. To do this deep healing work so that we can be present to ourselves and to God and and be disillusioned and embrace the the reality? That's what I mean by naked and unashamed. We come to this place where we view ourselves and our neighbors with grace, with love, removing the judgments and the dualistic thinking. (laughs) And we're able to see ourselves through the eyes of God that's being naked and unashamed. That's where God is taking us. I just need five more minutes. Is that okay? So, what is our mission as the church? It's to go to hell. <laughs> okay.
0: Not my idea,
1: that's Jesus' idea. And by the way, did you ever notice that when Jesus says to Peter, and this is your Peter, you're the rock, and on this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail? He's describing hell as a gated community. <laughs> he is. <laughs> Have we even thought about that? The gates of hell will not prevail. What Jesus is describing in a metaphoric way he's describing the church Followers of Jesus, people who bear a strong family likeness to Jesus Christ, actively going and breaking down the gates of hell and going in there and setting up residence, freeing the place, bringing about transformation so it's not hell anymore. Breaking down the gates and going in there and setting up processes of transformation. Now, I remember back in the day, Before I experienced much liberation myself, that I heard that text preached, and the way it was preached to me was that um, the gates of hell will not prevail. We, the church, are a gated community. We're in a little fortress, and hell is all out there, the world. It's all the worldly world to be feared and hated. You don't want anybody to accuse you of being worldly, because that's awful. Heaven forbid. And so uh, the gates of hell will not prevail. In that way, that it was preached to me, we're hunkered down in our fortress and hell's trying to get in, but Jesus won't let him in. But I ask you, is that really the way of Jesus? Even our Apostles' Creed, the old version, he died and was buried, he descended into hell. Do you remember that? Do not take that out of the creed. Descended into hell. Jesus came so that Jesus could do that. Pull Adam and Eve up out of hell. There's a beautiful icon of the resurrection where Jesus is, there's an empty coffin here and an empty coffin here and he's got Adam here, he's got Eve there and he's pulling them right up out of hell, taking them with him. Isn't that awesome? He's taking humanity with him. Adam and Eve are humanity. Amazing. So what does it mean for us? Jesus says we're to go, uh, the, the gates of hell will not prevail. This is the church's work. The church's work is to be an alternative community that looks and feels like heaven, where there's neither male nor female, Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, where we're filled with the Spirit, where we're living the baptized life, where our community smells like baking bread and tastes like wine. It's beautiful. A foretaste of the reign of God forever. That's what the church's job is. God's, God's reign is much bigger than the church, but this is the, the church gets to cooperate with God in God's mission in the world. That's what our work is in the world. And so, wherever Jesus goes, we get to go with him. So here is the question for our reflection during our time of solitude now. What is your neighborhood hell? What would it take to go there with Jesus?
0: so grateful for the saints because of access to julian's showings we hear the bold claim that god is for us this isn't to puff us up or make us better than anyone else but julian is convinced that love is god's meaning not judgment hate or anger And she shares these visions in the context of a deadly pandemic. And with no science, people are convinced that God has something against them. Beloved, we are in strangely similar circumstances of a deadly pandemic and science that many people don't want to access. People are convinced that God has something against them. What will it take for us to lay down our obsession with labeling sin or dwelling in shame? What will it take for us to run quickly to our good mother, Jesus, who will kiss it and make it better? I needed to hear Elaine's reminder to go back to Julian of Norwich to read about her accounts. I needed to hear these words today, that we are already God's joy, God's delight. Even before we embark on our respective journeys toward reconciliation, reparation, and healing, we are aglow with the warmth of Christ's love. That is good news. That is really good news. Thanks for listening along with us today. A gentle reminder that the Spiritual Academy Day Apart with Dr. Elaine Heath and Juan Huertas is on November 12, and you are encouraged to register by November 5. For more information, visit academy.upperroom.org. I encourage you to share this podcast with others. Maybe it's a nudge, a guide, an honoring of intuitions you've long held, and a means for love to be shared more broadly in your life and in the lives of all.